Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Before we begin, I've got some big news. I have just written my first book, Happy Not Perfect, Upgrade Your Mind, Challenge Your Thoughts and Free Yourself from Anxiety. The book will teach you my easy flex method for more flexible thoughts that will help change your thinking to transform your life. You'll read about my own journey from stress, low self-esteem and negativity and how I was able to turn it around by learning how my mind worked from world leading experts like my podcast guests and understanding what would help my mind work better for me. If you've enjoyed my show, please pre-order the book in the link in the show notes. I can't wait for you to read it and start practicing a flexible mindset. The average person, it's not so much that they hate what they see when they're looking at their phone. I would say the average sort of busy person, you know, parent of kids with a job or whatever that's maybe using, let's say, Instagram too much, they probably pretty carefully curated what they're looking at, right? That's not their issue. The issue is not the content. It's I'm looking at this when it's bath time. And what I really should be doing is spending time with my kid. And why am I still looking at this? Or I'm at dinner with my family. Why am I still looking at this? So that is what I think the actual problem is. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. And this show is about upgrading our mind, our energy and our understanding of how we can live life to our fullest potential. Over the next few weeks, I'm interviewing thought leaders, scientists, nutritionists, and experts to share tips and tricks for how we can shed the old and step into the new. I hope you join me on the journey. Today's guest is someone I wish I'd found years ago. Cal Newport, the world expert and best-selling author of How Technology Affects Our Productivity and Stress Levels. His best-selling books, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, led him to write his latest, 
a world without email. Can you imagine what our life would be like without email? The average person checks their emails 75 times per day and heavy users, which could be someone like myself, it could be up to 400 times. The average worker sends 126 emails per day. That is one every four minutes. Don't be too alarmed though. Cal Newport is here to save us and tell us useful solutions for learning to live with email successfully rather than have it destroy our working patterns. Do you have a quote you like to return to often and why? I don't have one I always return to. I tend to rotate. So there'll be a, a quote that I'm, I'm temporarily obsessed with, and then that'll last for a while, and then I'll move on to the next. And I'll, I'll tell you the quote that I've been temporarily obsessed with now comes from Hemingway, and it was about his writing habits. And it was something to the effect of, my writing habits are very simple, long periods of thinking followed by short periods of writing. So that has been my new inspiring quote of the moment because it, it helps me remember how much value comes from the actual act of just thinking and how much of the, the sort of frenetic activity that's on the outskirts of that, the communicating, the typing, the sending, the posting, the what have you, is actually not at the center of creative, interesting work. I love that and can be applied to so many areas of our life. What's a recent life lesson you've been reminded of? <laughs> I was telling you, we were, we were talking off camera about how I forgot to uh, press record when I was recording something right before this interview. There's a life lesson there. Always double check that you've pressed record. But, you know, uh, maybe on the fly, I'm going to try to ch transform that into something a little bit more general here. Something about presence and gratitude, right? Like, what is the, what is the metaphorical application of pressing record is uh, you don't want to miss what's important about what's happening right now. So there we go. How is that for, for transforming the, <laughs> the proximate to the philosophical? I love that. Thank you for that. And how do you define happiness? I think of happiness as a physiological state associated with positive affect. It's nice when it comes, you know, and it can surprise you sometimes when it comes and you should savor it when it is there. Uh, but I don't really prioritize its pursuit. I think meaning, satisfaction, impact, um, pride in how ones are living. This is the foundation for a resilient life, a life that can take those ups, that can take those downs. And so happiness, I think of as it's like getting a good night's sleep or something like, oh, that's nice. Like, I feel nice. I'm glad it's here and I'm glad and I'm, and I'm happy it's here, but I'm not going to obsess about, well, what if I am not well rested tomorrow? Because there's so much of that that's out of your control. Amen to that. So let's dive in to your brilliant book, A World Without Email. And I do want to touch upon your two first books because all of them are interlinked. But to begin with this one, why did you write A World Without Email? Well, it came out of an earlier book. So in 2016, I published this book called Deep Work, and it was about focus is important, and we kind of ignore focus, and, and, and we shouldn't. Like We should pay more respect to concentrated, undistracted thinking. Well, one of the big pieces of feedback from that book was, you know, Cal, you don't realize how almost impossible it is to do that right now. I can't put aside an hour to think about something important because I, I'm going to get 30 emails in that, in that moment. There's people on Teams, there's people on Slack who need me. It's almost impossible. And I thought this was really interesting, right? There's a, there's a big question here. Why do we work in a way in which we have to constantly be communicating? Like who decided that, right? And does it make sense? I mean, is it somehow unavoidable? Is this what work has to mean in the world of computers? You know, why are we doing it the way? And if not, what could work look like instead? I just thought these were really big questions that no one had really been asking. We all just sort of settled into 
this all the time is what work means. The best we can do is have some better hacks and maybe some tools to make some of this faster. But of course, you have to send a ton of emails all day. That's work. And I wasn't quite ready to accept that. I was like, let's go a little bit deeper. Since when? And are we happy with that decision? That, those were the questions I was going after. So let's speak about that for a moment, because to be honest, I think you were the first person, I guess, who raised my awareness to how unhealthy our digital habits have become because it's preventing us from thinking for a long period of time. How is this affecting our brain health? Yeah, you know, I wrote a pair of books about this, one on work, one outside of work. So deep work in 2016 was saying, you know, in the world of work, it's really the focus concentration that produces all the value. So we should be careful about it. And then I wrote a book, Digital Minimalism, that was about our life outside of work. And so, you know, all this time we're spending looking at our phones when other moments are going on, other things of value, other things we could be doing that are important. We keep fragmenting these moments by looking at our phones. Why are we doing that? And that has its cost as well. Uh, and so what are those costs? Well, in a professional setting, you have to keep in mind network switching is expensive. So when we're thinking about work productivity, this is the most important physiological fact that almost no one recognizes right now, which is it is expensive to switch your attention from one thing to another. We don't do that fast. Humans don't do that fast. So if I'm working on this and then I want to change over and work on that, it might take me 10, 15 minutes. There's, there's a lot of stuff happening in the brain. There's neurons that are being amplified. There's neural networks that are being inhibited. It's a whole complex dance. The issue with checking inboxes or Slack or Teams every six minutes is that every time you do one of these checks, you initiate a network switch. You are now seeing communication from people in your tribe, so your brain takes it very seriously. It's all about different types of projects that have their own context surrounding them. Your brain begins to try to initiate a switch of its attention to those issues, but what most people do is because you're, you're just checking this quickly. So then you abort that attention switch just after it gets started, then you try to wrench back to where you were before. And then before you can completely get back to where you are before, you wrench it back to the inbox of the Slack and begin a new thing over there. And then you wrench your attention back before that can finish. Uh, so our brain becomes this pile of half-completed neural context switches, which makes us very difficult to think clearly. It's also mentally fatiguing. It's why by two or three o'clock, a lot of office workers just kind of give up on anything hard and are just sort of mindlessly scrolling through email. And it makes us anxious. The world outside of work is the same thing. If we're always looking at our phones, it's social media, it's text messages, whatever, we're having that same context shifting cost. So it's, it's, it's a fatigue and a sense of anxiety. It also, in the world outside of work, takes our attention away from things that could be producing more value. So higher value activities, connection with people, being in the moment in something that is, itself is very gratifying. There, there's a lot of things that could be giving us a lot more value. And by fragmenting those moments, we really reduce the value we get out of what we're doing. And so net-net, we end up getting a lot more value out of our day. We feel flatter. We feel more gray. We feel more numb. So in both work and the world outside of work, this sort of constant checking of digital devices really has a lot of negative consequences it pulls with it. It's like snacking and never having a full meal. Like it kind of ruins your meal because you're just snacking all day on these tiny pieces of information. Yeah, there's actually even a term in the social psych literature called social snacking that was trying to understand why paradoxically heavier social media use can be associated with loneliness mm. and social snacking. What they're basically saying is what happens with heavy social media users is that they're replacing the meal, which in this context is I'm with you and I'm sacrificing non-trivial time and attention on behalf of this connection. We're seeing each other in person and it, it's, I'm spending two hours out of my day. You know, that's the meal when it comes to sociality, what our mind really craves. We replace it with a snack of uh, emoji 
on a response to your Instagram post, a text message. Yeah, sounds great, exclamation point, exclamation point. So we do all these little, little social pokes and we hope that the snacking will end up being enough calories, but our brain doesn't take the social snacking as seriously as real non-trivial social interaction. And so heavy social media years can end up feeling lonely, even though on paper, they're never more than four minutes away from having done some sort of social activity. So yeah, it's, it's a really good analogy. How has things changed in the last 15 years? Have you seen a dramatic increase in mental health problems because of the fact that before we were there was still a limit potentially to our, you know, communication around work. What has the research shown and what are your conclusions? So we have two different worlds here that are, we'll keep separate. They seem similar, but they have some different underlying dynamics. We have the world of work and then we have the world of, let's say, our phone outside of work. If we look in the world of work, the timeline here that's relevant is that email takes off in the early 1990s. Uh, this is when you begin to see email spread very widely through offices, uh, especially in the West and then later around the world. And what was going on here is that it was a productivity silver bullet because there was existing communication modalities that email drastically improved. And in particular, the voicemail, fax machine, and inner office memos. We were doing those. Email could do it a lot better. So through the 90s, email spread because it was solving a real problem. By the early 2000s, we begin to see the first complaints about email overload. So it didn't take long once the tool was here to bring with it an approach to work in which we checked it all the time. That's not fundamental to the tool, and that's a key separation we can get into later. But email, for various reasons we can get into, brought with it this way of working. So by the early 2000s, we were checking it too much. If you look at, let's say, in the U.S. in particular, we measure, our Bureau of Labor Statistics measures productivity, so sort of uh, value produced per worker hour. There's particular formulas. And if you look at non-industrial productivity, so roughly knowledge work productivity, so let's take factories and farms out of the picture, it gets stagnant. So we have all this new tech starts coming in in the 2000s. First, we get email, then we get broadband email, then we get smartphones so, that, so we can communicate wherever we are and the friction gets really low and we get laptops so we can bring this with us wherever we go. And productivity just stays stagnant throughout that whole period. And I think what, what you're measuring there is basically we could move information faster than ever before. We could communicate more than ever before. We had access to more information than ever before. But it, the trade-off was we had to constantly be fragmenting our attention. And net-net, that made us less productive. Now, I think the reason why we stagnated and didn't even get worse is because we began to add extra work off the books. I'll get up early and do work before uh, people start emailing. After I put my kids to bed, I'll work at night on my laptop. So we, we basically just added uncompensated off the books work to just keep up with what we were doing before email came along. So I think in, those, in the world of work and those metrics is where we see a problem was caused. In the world outside of work, we see pretty strong signals in the social psych literature of increases in mental health and anxiety issues that, that came along with heavy phone usage. It's particularly pronounced when we're looking at teenagers, especially pronounced when we're looking at teenage girls. Uh, this is where we see a lot of negative indicators really shot up just as soon as you got to the first generation that had access to these devices starting in their early adolescence. So we have different issues in these two different worlds. The similar type of problems, we're looking at this technology too much, but the causes and the harms are also somewhat separate. So let's slightly dive into teenage girls. In your research, how does this play into our dopamine response? How does this tie into, I guess, how we're becoming addicted to tech? Dopamine response is like a good general term for a much more complex psychological realities. But what's really putting this sort of neuroscience aside of what's actually happening in the brain, 
what I've been reporting on, what we know is true, is that there's just a lot of engineering muscle was put into making, in particular, consumer-facing tools like social media into making it addictive. The more minutes you spend, the more data they get from you, the more profitable the companies are. These are publicly traded companies, so they have a responsibility to extract as much profit as possible from their resources. The resources are you, the user, and so obviously a lot of money has gone into this. So there's a lot of engineering of these tools to try to get you to come back to them, to use them as much as possible. And it uses many, many different tricks and ideas from how the content is selected to the colors of the icons, to the ways that you actually refresh, to, to the way new information comes in, even to artificial intermittent reinforcement. Let's hold back some likes and then give you more at some point. Now, I'll say when I was reporting digital minimalism, this came out in 2019, there was basically just rumors that maybe Instagram and Facebook did a little bit of manipulation of likes. They would hold them back a little bit so that they would be a little more uneven. It makes you more likely to go back to the slot machine if sometimes you get a big win and sometimes you don't. Well, now today, TikTok just brags about this. <laughs> yeah. This is the way TikTok works. They say, okay, you are a new user. We are going to feed you views on a schedule that we have optimized to get you addicted like a slot machine. Maybe your second video will give you a big burst of views, just enough that you're like, oh, wait a second, I might be onto something. Like I, I, I have something that's really hitting it and then we'll pull them back. Mm. You're like, oh man, I got to get that back. And, but before you leave, oh, we'll give you a, another big burst of views on another video and, and keep you strung along in this notion of like, there's an audience out there and, I'm circ- and they like me. And sometimes I get it quite... I don't quite get it. And sometimes I quite hit it. It's just right around the corner. I'm going to be a TikTok star. It's just 100% artificial. So they've given up even trying to obfuscate it. The number of people they expose your video to can directly connect to the views. They are following an intermittent reinforcement schedule that has no other purpose, but to keep you on this app as much as possible. So that was like innuendo when I was reporting before and I was being careful. And now it's like part of the prospectus. <laughs> you know, it's how they brag to their investors. Look how good we are at this. So there is a reason why we're so glued to these uh, devices when we're talking about those consumer-facing applications where there's a direct profit motive to get us to do so. Why does this worry you the most? And what is your prediction for the next 10 years, given the state of play right now? Well, when, when it comes to the excessive phone use, I went out there and did a big survey on this when I was working on that book, that digital minimalism book. And, and I worked with about 1,600 people. And I actually had them go through a whole experiment of taking these technologies out of their life and then rebuilding their technological life from scratch. The main thing that came up that was distressing to people was the amount of time they were using it. And then I think this is is important because it's a bit of a separation from, let's say, media coverage of these tools. Media has an interesting, which is the main lens through which we see these tools. They have an interesting relationship with these tools where they, A, see them as absolutely fundamental to life because for them in the media, Twitter and social media and their phone is just really intertwined with their life, right? So they're not ready or prepared or comfortable to undermine the importance of these tools. So a lot of the focus of media critique of these tools is the actual content. All right. Well, the problem is, is the wrong things are being said on these platforms. And that's what we have to fix. But when I was working with real people, the issue was I look at it too much. And why is looking at it too much a problem? Well, because when I'm looking at it too much, it takes me away from things that are more valuable and more important. And I want more of my life invested in things that are really valuable and really important and less of my life invested in things that's less important. So the average person, it's not so much that they hate what they see when they're looking at their phone. I would say the average sort of busy person, you know, parent of kids with a job or whatever that's maybe using, let's say, Instagram too much, they're probably pretty carefully curated what they're looking at, right? I mean, they're not uh, they're not looking at 
terrible, like uh, anxiety producing misinformation. It's probably like people they know and families and whatever, right? That's not their issue. The issue is not the content. It's I'm looking at this when it's bath time. And what I really should be doing is spending time with my kid. And why am I still looking at this? Or I'm at Mm -hmm. dinner with my family. Why am I still looking at this? So that is what I think the actual problem is. Not that it's evil what you see, but that the quality of your life significantly diminishes when you fragment it into these small slivers and can't actually enjoy or pursue things would be much, much more valuable uh, than what you're seeing on there. So in your book, Digital Minimalism, you provide loads of tools to help you create a more digital minimalist life. Would you mind sharing some of the ones since that book uh, was released that have been most useful for people or you've seen the greatest results? You know, the big idea in that book is that the right way forward here is not top down, bottom up. So if you think about an analogy to an an overcluttered closet, there's two ways you can approach that, right? So I have too much junk in my closet. The top down approach is like, well, let me bring in some organizing containers and try to move the shoes over here. Let me try to put rules and tips and tricks and hacks into how I move this stuff around in my closet to try to make it more organized. The bottom-up approach is like Mary Kondo. Well, I'm just going to take everything out of my closet <laughs> and just put back in the stuff I really want. And then I don't need to go to the container store and get all these companies. There's not that much stuff to go back into it. I was arguing you should do that with your personal digital life as well. We, we shouldn't start with hacks and tips and trips. I have all this stuff in my, my metaphorical closet. So let me just try to put in rules about like, well, I turn off my notifications. And I don't bring my phone into the bed. And, and I only try to check Twitter on Tuesdays. And you're, you're trying to organize the closet that already, but the problem is it has too much stuff in it, right? So the thing I suggest is actually get rid of everything. Take a month. Don't use social media. Don't use online videos be much more sparing about your text messaging, be much more sparing about your WhatsApp. Like just have certain times you check in, apologize in advance, right? Get back in touch with what you care about. So you reflect and experiment. What do I really want to spend my time doing in my life outside of work? What's important? And then you can say, what's the best way to use technology to amplify or support these things I really care about? The big win here is that when you're deploying technology very intentionally to help very specific things, you know why you're using technology. Now you can put rules around it that make a lot of sense. Like rules make sense once you know why you're using it. So like one of the examples from the book is I ran into a bunch of different visual artists who use Instagram because they don't live in New York and they don't live in London. So they don't have access to a gallery scene, but they need to see innovative new works of art from people in their medium so that they can have grist for their creative mill. And on Instagram, a lot of artists will publish photos of their art. So it's very important for their creative process. But once they knew that's why they were on Instagram, oh, you know, art is very, very important to me. And Instagram can help me do this thing that's important to me better. It's so easy to put rules on it because like, well, why is this on my phone? And how many artists do I really need to follow? Well, there's 10. How long does it take me to keep up with what they're doing? It takes me about 15 minutes, about once a week. And now suddenly Instagram is something they type into their web browser on Sunday night and spend 20 minutes on. And they get this great value out of it. It's not something they look at every 20 minutes all throughout their week. So If you deploy technology for particular reasons, to support things you care about, it is very easy to put rules about how you use that technology, and suddenly you're back in the driver's seat, right? These things help me. It's not me trying to help the stockholders of these companies. So that that inversion, bottom up, figure out what you want to do, and then put tech to use on behalf of that. And once you know why you're using tech, then put the reasonable rules around it. That's the sustainable formula much more so than let me come from the top down and just throw some tips and tricks and rules and or do some detoxes and just white knuckle it and say, I'm not going to use my phone on the weekend. No, you got to start from scratch, rebuild it on real principles to make sense. And then suddenly tech is a real bonus in your life and no longer a drag. I think the friction that, you know, 
I've heard from listeners of this show and just talking to friends is taking that first month because they've become a bit of a anesthetic you know you're feeling pain anxious and it's a distraction mechanism what are your thoughts about that it's definitely true it's it's very hard and especially if it has become a numbing agent which i think it has for a lot of people but we know in almost any other context if there's something you are using some sort of behavior or substance that you're using to avoid pain that is always the foundation of a negative addictive relationship Right. I mean, it's why, for example, you know, in the UK, if your grandmother goes in to get a hip replacement, the painkillers that NHS was using, at least until recently, was basically heroin. Right. So every grandmother that went in uh, to get a hip replacement was being given heroin. Very few of them end up heroin addicts. Right. What's the difference between someone going in to get a hip replacement and someone who becomes a heroin addict is that if you're using heroin to try to numb or any drug to numb pain that's when you get that really strong loop in your mind and it's very difficult to get away. It's like with the painkiller crisis in the US. We, Of course, mm. tons of people use painkillers, tons of surgeries all the time. The problem is when you start taking painkillers outside of just recovery because it makes you, you want to get away from things that are hard. Same thing with drinking, same thing with compulsive you know, gambling, same thing with compulsive eating, right? So the alarm bell should be going off. If you realize I feel stressed about life and I'm kind of on here and it gives me some sort of temporary relief because this algorithm has found stuff that's going to at least press buttons. That's going to make me feel distracted and alive. It might make me mad. It might make me laugh. It might make me happy. You know, it's just different buttons, but alarm bells should be going off. So it is really difficult because of that. It's also difficult to be alone with your own thoughts. That's another big piece of feedback I got for a lot of people, especially young people. It's very scary. Like, I don't want to be alone with my own thoughts. I don't want to have to confront things I'm afraid of or ashamed of. Uh, things aren't going well. I don't want to have to face that. Something bad has happened. I don't want to have to confront that. I'm just disappointed about this. Or I'm scared about this. I don't think this is going well. My career is not going where I want it to go. And it's scary. And this can keep you away from it. Just like in a different era, the local bar could do the same thing. And in a different era, you know, there's all sorts of different things that can get us away from what's hard, but it's almost never the right thing to do. So I think you are absolutely right to point out it's very, very difficult to initiate this month. But that difficulty is what underscores its necessity. Yes. And one thing I think will hopefully motivate all of us, going back to your point about how we have seen this influx of technology enhancing our productivity through productivity tools such as email, such as Slack. That's the reason why they supposedly were created. But actually, productivity hasn't increased. So would you say that technology is actually making us more stupid? Yeah. So in the workforce, what happened is the definition of productivity here was just wrong. It was just an industrial metaphor, right? So when you're thinking about building things, what matters will friction and speed. So if I can put the steering wheel on faster, we build a car faster. If I can get the wheels over to the assembly line faster, we can build a car faster. And so in an information world, like, oh, we, if we can move the information faster, then things can happen faster. Like we're, we're strictly making things faster, but faster is not that relevant when you have human brains involved, right? Mm that's where we got into trouble. It's like, yeah, you can move information around faster, but the human brain can't process information that fast. And so then we just put ourselves into this weird situation where we're just overflowing the buffer. Our brain's trying to attention switch faster than it can actually do. And it's like when the little wheel on your Mac gets going and it's stuck and our brain basically gets stuck and we can't do anything. We thought we were being more productive, but we were using a industrial metaphor and thinking about productivity and it actually made us less productive. So in that sense, yeah, it has made us stupider. I think the way 
your mind operates when you're in that constant context shifting mode is a significant degradation of your ability to think clearly. I mean, one of the jokes I make is it's not a quantitative thing, but just roughly speaking, I think checking your inbox once every six minutes has the same effect on your ability to think clearly as let's say taking a shot of whiskey once every 30 minutes, right? Like it's (laughs) a similar effect. We really should not underestimate the degree to which we're dumbing ourselves down by putting our brain into that constant state. So moving on to a world without email, you talk about uh, a few solutions and I would love to go through those. So what are your thoughts around email exhaustion and what are some solutions to have a more harmonious relationship with something that is arguably necessary in the in the modern day world. Yeah. So what's useful for thinking about solutions is the terminology. So email is a tool I actually don't have much of a problem with. I mean, remember the original reason why it spread in the 90s? That's still a good reason. It's better than fax machines, it's better than memos, and it's better than voicemail, right? So what does the problem come through? Well, it comes with the way that we started collaborating once email came along. And this way of collaborating, I actually call it the hyperactive hive mind workflow. The hyperactive hive mind workflow says, oh, now that we have very low friction, fast digital communication, let's just use that as the main way that we collaborate. So we'll figure most things out with back and forth, unscheduled ad hoc messages. It's actually the hyperactive hive mind workflow, not email itself, but that workflow that's causing the problems. Because if you have a lot of colleagues and a lot of clients and a lot of vendors, and you're working out a lot of things with them in these back and forth, unscheduled conversations, that's what makes you have to check your inbox all the time because you have to tend to these conversations, right? It's these ping pong matches happening and you have to hit the ball back pretty quickly or it's going to take too long for you to get to a decision. So it's really the hyperactive hive mind workflow that causes all the problems. That then gives us a much more productive way to think about solutions because now solutions is not about tools. It's not about is email good or bad? Is Slack better than email or whatever? It's about, (laughs) oh, workflow, Just we'll figure things out on the fly with unscheduled back and forth messages. That's the problem. Let's replace that with other ways of collaborating. And so all of my solutions are about figuring out the things that you do regularly in your work life. These are the things I come back to again and again. And for each saying, is there a better way for us to work on this, to collaborate on this, to move the information necessary, to coordinate, to make decisions? Is there a better way to do this than just I'll shoot you a message and you shoot me one back? And you just go thing by thing, process by process in your life, things you come back to again and again, and you keep trying to ask the same question. Can I replace the hive mind here with another workflow that has less of these unscheduled messages? And you repeat and you repeat and you repeat. And over time, the amount of these unscheduled messages showing up in your inbox that require responses really decreases and the pressure all gets dissipated. And the inbox goes back to being what it was in 1995, which was like a much more efficient physical mailbox. I'll go check that once a day. I'm glad I don't have to go get a memo. I'm glad I don't have to check my voicemail, but it's not at the center of all the work that I'm doing. Can you do this alone? Or is this something that actually people need to put into place as a community or as a workforce? Both, right? So you you can start alone and actually make a lot of of progress, right? So if just you think about all of the different processes you're involved with on a regular basis, and for each, just ask, what can I do? Just given what I can control, how can I reduce unscheduled messages? That alone can make a really big difference, even if no one else in your organization knows anything about this or cares about it. And some of this stuff is just internal, like how you're dealing with processes. And sometimes you're stealthily recruiting people you work with to a smarter way of working. You're just not telling them that's what you're doing, right? Because I'm not a big fan of sort of just announcing to people, this is how I work now. And, and this is why it just annoys people, right? So don't, don't announce it. But, but I talk about in the book that it could be something as subtle as, you know, you're like, okay, hey, we got to get this report done. Oh, here's what I suggest. 
I'll get a draft into our share just Dropbox folder. I'll get it in there by noon on Monday. Then it's all yours. I won't touch it. So make your edits and comments. I'm going to pick it back up again on Tuesday morning to, to integrate your comments into a final version. I've CC'd on this message, our designer. Hey, designer, the draft you see in that Dropbox at noon on Tuesday, by noon on Tuesday, is the final draft that you can take and you can finalize. We already have a meeting on the books for Thursday morning, so we'll grab it out of that shared folder. So just have it done before Thursday morning. We'll, we'll talk about it quickly at the next meeting. That's in one email. I've technically just recruited two different people here into a better process that requires zero unscheduled messages to get this thing done. But I didn't call it a process. And I didn't talk about the hyperactive hive mind. And God forbid, I didn't talk about Cal Newport. I just sort of was like, <laughs> hey, let's just do it this way. And everyone else involved, like, okay, whatever. I'm glad there's a plan. So what do I need to do? I need to do this by, okay, great. So now I know what I need to do. Great. I have a billion other things to do and they move on. But you've just kind of secretly put people into a process that's you've probably saved 25 inbox checks with just that little bit more time in that message. So there's a lot you can actually do uh, without actually having to recruit people. Now, where I think ultimately organizations need to go is that this should be bigger than individuals. I think it should happen at the level of the team. So wherever you have a consistent unit of people that work together on recurrently on the same type of goals, the team level is where this should happen. So everyone can have buy-in, everyone can be involved in the process construction, and it's very flexible. You can kind of tweak and improve these things over time. I don't think CEOs should be mandating processes over large companies. That's too bureaucratic. So it needs to be flexible. Mm. That's my vision is that at the team level, there's really well-specified processes that minimize unscheduled messages and they're constantly being iterated and flexible and everyone's involved with them. But even until you get there, just see what you can do. There's huge improvements that are latent in just this sort of asymmetric personal process optimization. It also sounds to me it's being really disciplined with your communication because I know I'm really guilty of being one of those people that sends seven text messages when they when she could send one. How have we fallen into such bad communication habits that we have to now consciously really take ourselves back? Well, you know, it's easier in the moment, which is a very powerful force to combat. And, and th this is how we get into a lot of trouble. In the moment, if I send a really quick message, I have taken something off of my plate. It's not in my mental space. I'm not responsible for it. And I get a sense of relief. And so the quickest way to get that sense of relief, I'm going to naturally be inclined to do. And this is when we get into obligation hot potato, where you see this thing in your inbox. Like, you know, if I send off this ill thought through response, you know, it's like a made up question. Uh, are you sure? Are we sure that's not a problem? Question mark, whatever. I know it's going to come back again. But in the moment, it's off my plate and I feel a little bit better about it. Then the next person is going to get the message like, I just want this out of here, right? So they'll be like, I don't know. Uh, let me CC Bob thoughts, question mark. Go. Ah, it's out of my hands, right? And then they're throwing the hot potato somewhere else. No one wants to hold these things in our head. No one wants to have the responsibility if we can get it off our plate even temporarily. And so we're just playing obligation hot potato. And then we're just sending these things back and forth. And of course, the problem is not only does that slow down progress towards actually getting it done, it creates a lot more messages that we have to then check. So we're, we're making things worse, but there's a lot of power in the moment of like, can I just, what's the easiest thing I can do right now to get this off my plate? Yeah, discipline helps, but what makes discipline effective is when you know what you're being disciplined towards, right? Mm. And this is a lot of the issue now is that most people have this amorphous not notion of what does productive even mean because organizations don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. We leave it to the individuals. We say, it's up to you to be productive. That's not our business. We give you objectives, management by objectives. Here's your objective. You figure out how you want to do the work. If you want to be productive, buy a David Allen book. It's not up to us, right? We don't know <laughs> what it means. 
And so we're like, I don't know, like, I don't, what, what am I even supposed to be disciplined about? Right. And so we just fall back on this least common denominator. What's easiest in the moment obligation, hot potato. And then you have, you know, Gen Z is 50% burnt out, you know, three years out of college because it's, this is not a cognitively sustainable way of actually working. But if you know what you're being disciplined about, like, oh, I get it. All right. Here's the game. We have a human brain. Context switching is expensive. Sequentiality is the best way to use my brain. Working on one thing at a time until you're done to move on to the next. Okay. Then what I'm trying to do here when I coordinate with people is if it's, it's the back and forth. I want to I have this visceral dislike of, am I about to create a bunch of back and forth? Oh, I hate that. And I will put up with a lot of upfront inconvenience right now if I can avoid 25 back and forth messages going forward, right? So, so when you know what to be disciplined about, you've trained yourself to have a visceral discomfort with excessive context switching and unscheduled messages and ad hoc messages. Mm. Now you have an actual outlet for that discipline. You're like, nope, I'm not going to send off thoughts. Let's take a beat. Mm. All right, what do we actually need to do here? And would you say the direct opposite of this multi-switch mind is being in flow? Flow theory plays an interesting role in here, right? So this is Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's theory of flow. Mm. But I want to go more broad. So what you're really looking for is sequentiality, right? If you want to get the most out of your brain, you don't want to context shift. So if you're working on something, you only want to work on that thing until you reach a stopping point. And then you do something else. That is by far, the, that's how the human brain works. What you don't want to do is interrupt that work with really quick checks of other things. You do need that type of sequentiality if you're going to have any chance of going in the flow, right? So it's a necessary precondition, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're context switching, you can't get in the flow. However, doing one thing at a time doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get into flow, right? So there, there's actually a lot of productive work. You're getting a lot out of your brain. It's very valuable. that doesn't feel at all like a flow state, but it's still really important. So I generalize flow states feel really good. You lose track of time, but it really requires a very careful combination of factors to come together to really fall into a flow state. And so I often caution people, it's not really the goal. You want to be working in a way where you can fall into these flow states when you when the conditions are right. A lot of your work, the conditions won't be right for a flow state. So the thing that you should really be aiming for is thinking about one thing at a time without any context shifts. And then when you're done, you move on to the next thing. So really what you're saying, there's no such thing as a multitasker. Yeah. And, and but see, multitasking, we we get, right? So by the early 2000s, we were okay with this idea that we can't literally do multiple things at the same time. So like I'm on the phone, email, writing. Okay, there's research that came out. Cliff Nass at Stanford and some others did this research. Like, okay, we're bad at that. The issue with what we're doing now with the context switching is that we think we're single tasking. (laughs) We don't have the inbox open. We don't have notifications turned on. No, no, we're just every six or seven minutes glancing at it to make sure that, you know, Bob didn't send back his reply to my hot potato message of thoughts, question mark. Um, so we have to check this, but, but we're just checking it for 30 seconds, then going back to what we're doing. And, and so we tell ourselves that's single tasking because yeah, I, I, there's these checks, but they only last for 30 seconds. What we're not counting on is the cost of the context switch initiation. So that's mm-hmm. the new thing that I think we really need to get up to speed on. Even if you're not looking at that inbox anymore, the fact that you glanced at it triggered this cascade in your brain, which is now still having multitasking like negative impacts on your ability to focus for minutes and minutes after you're done. So that's the big conceptual shift I want people to have. Initiating the context shift can be just as damaging as trying to sort of do the thing. So it's like stealth multitasking is killing us. I honestly think this is one of the most important interviews I have done. And anyone who's listening that manages a team, or even if you don't manage a team, I honestly recommend buying this book for every single person you know, because 
who knew we were damaging ourselves, our potential as human beings and our work output in our social lives, personal lives, every area of our life. It's not that hard to solve. I mean, it's not easy, but it's not that complicated. Let's put it that way. It's not complicated to understand what the problem is here and what the solution would look like. But I will say, here's one of the big things holding us back is that there is a real culture of autonomy in knowledge work where we say it's up to the individuals to figure out how to be productive. Managers should just give people objectives. That actually comes from one person. There's a a theorist named Peter Drucker who coined the term knowledge work in the 1950s and basically convinced everyone that autonomy was key and knowledge work, you have to leave the workers alone to figure out how they work. That's why we don't see a lot of solutions to these issues because we've been taught by Peter Drucker just what's taught at the business schools. It's just in the air that it's unseemly for the organization to be thinking about how you talk back and forth, how you communicate, how you keep track of it, how many tasks you work on, how you organize your tasks. And that's why it's been so hard to make progress is that we're really uncomfortable with this idea that this is our business at all. Mm. The problem, of course, is when you leave productivity entirely up to the individuals, no one person can really change the system. So you're going to end up in the lowest common denominator state. Well, what's the easiest in the moment? And that's this hyperactive hive mind. So it's easy to understand the issue here. It's easy to conceptualize the fixes. The real hard part, I think, is making this step in knowledge work that says, while it's true that how you execute your work should be left up to the individual, right? There's no way that I want a manager to tell me how to write computer code, right? I mean, that's, I'm skilled as creative. How we organize that work is the business of the organization. It is the business of management. We should be trying to optimize that. We should be thinking about that. We should say, welcome to my com- our company. We think that people should only be working on two things at a time. Here's how it works. The task mm-hmm. on this board, you're assigned one task a day. Mm-hmm. You should only have to work on one thing a day. Here's how we track it. Here's how, you know, we should be thinking about it. So making that leap that organizations and teams and leaderships and management can be thinking about how we organize our work and trying to make that better Mm. that's going to unlock everything else. So that's really the obstacle, I think, because it's just a mindset shift. It's been 50 years of this Drucker message of like autonomy, 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 and it's a little bit too much autonomy. And, and that, that's been an issue. Well, where can people find you and in what capacity can people work with you? Well, so you won't find me on social media because I've, <laughs> I've never had a social media account, which maybe doesn't come as a surprise if you've heard about my book, Digital Minimalism. Um, I do have a website, calnewport.com. I, I've been writing a weekly essay there on these type of topics since 2007. So sort of my mailing list there is sort of at the core of my readership. Uh, and I have a podcast, Deep Questions, where all I do is take questions on these type of issues, work issues, technology issues, and living a deep life more generally. And it's every week, twice a week, just answering questions. So if you like this type of material, there's plenty of it going on there. Amazing. I'll put the link to your podcast in the show notes, as well as uh, your brilliant newsletter and your website and for any events that you may be doing in the future for people to attend. But uh, thank you for this deeply refreshing conversation about retraining our digital habits to live happier, healthier, and more I don't want to use the word productive, but maybe like this new defined word of productive lives. Yeah. Or let's say deeper lives. Deeper lives. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. 
thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.